You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I have on my bookshelf in my office a little tiny yellow book. I'm not even sure where I picked it up. And uh, it's been sitting on my shelf for several years, and every time I look at it, I think to myself, I really should read that because it's kind of one of those books that's sort of along the lines of things that would interest me. And, and so I picked it off my shelf this last week and started flipping through it. And it's only about 60 pages long, and the, the pages are really thick paper because it was published back in 1923. And the lettering is really big, and the spaces between the lines are really big. And it's my kind of book. I figure I could probably breeze through this in about 20 or 30 minutes. And so I picked it up and, and decided to read it this last week. It had an interesting title. It was written by R.A. Torrey, and the title of the book was this, Why God Used D.L. Moody. Why God Used D.L. Moody. Well, I've been thinking a lot these last few weeks about the type of man or woman that God uses and how God uses people because of the text of Scripture that is in front of us. And so I pulled the book off my shelf and started to read it. And in the introduction, it's a different author that does the introduction. And the author of the book, R.A. Torrey, was, he was a co-laborer with D.L. Moody, worked with D.L. Moody and knew Moody personally. And in the introduction or the foreword of the book, the author that wrote the foreword, he asked this question. Is it too much to say that God is always looking for the man or woman that he can use? Is it too much to say that God is always looking for the man or woman that he can use? Now let me ask you a question. Did the Lord use the Apostle Paul? It's an easy one to answer, isn't it? unqualified yes, with an exclamation point at the end of it. Now here's a tougher question. When we say that God uses a man or uses a woman, what do we mean by use? Maybe you think the Lord uses us in in these terms. We work independently of God doing the best that we can do and sort of during our life we offer up to the Lord whatever junk we can kind of put together that we think He's going to be able to use and that the Lord then takes that and makes the best out of it. Much like you might take a box of garbage from the attic and hand it over to the Lord and He takes and rummages through it and tosses out the junk and takes some of the nicer things and polishes them up and He's able to take all of that junk and sort of make a table setting out of it. Maybe that's how you think God uses us. Or maybe you think of the the Lord uses us in these terms. Like God helps us to help Him. He gives us a dose of hope and a little bit of grace and a little bit of strength and we call out to Him and He sort of knows everything and He's all-powerful. And so God uses us in this way that He sort of greases the wheels and makes things easier for us to serve Him. And so He kind of uses us in, in that way, like He helps us to help Him. I don't think Scripture portrays either of those things as a reality. When God, when the Bible talks about God using somebody, it has something entirely different in mind. You see, the Lord demands of us submission and surrender because He's Lord. 
He demands of us submission and surrender. So we, by His grace, come before the Lord, and He has our heart, our mind, our will, our body, our possessions, everything about us. It is then and only then that God will use a man or a woman. And as I read the book about D.L. Moody, you know what I found out? He was a man who was completely surrendered, completely submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. And God used him. It's Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship that He has created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of my good works, all of my deeds, all of my acts of service were prepared by the Lord in eternity past for me to walk in them. So that it is God who is the source He is the strength. He is the opportunity. He is the gifter. He is the caller. He is the one who gives to me everything that I need in order to serve Him. He is the one that even gives to me the grace to humble myself before Him, and this goes for you as well, so that in serving Him in the works that He has ordained for us, He gets all of the glory, and it is then that God uses us. Not in the sense that He makes the best out of what we can offer, Not in the sense that He helps us to help Him, but in the sense that He is the mover and we are just simply the instrument. Like a hammer placed on a bench that can do nothing of itself. And that hammer, unless it is picked up and used by the craftsman, will never accomplish anything. It will sit on that bench and it will rust and deteriorate for time and for eternity unless it is picked up by the hand of somebody who can use it. That's what it means when the Bible says that God uses a man or a woman. I've been thinking about this because we stand on the threshold of one of the, I think, one of the greatest passages in all of the book of Acts, and that's in Acts chapter 20. And you'll need to have your Bibles open to that so you can be looking at the passage that is before us. Acts chapter 20. This is the We're on the threshold of, of, I think, apart from anything Jesus said, the greatest sermon that was ever recorded by pen and paper. Now, I know that sounds like an astronomical statement and probably something that's almost unbelievable, but I think it's true. Of all of the sermons spoken by mere men, and Jesus was no mere man, so everything He said is apart from this, of all the sermons spoken by mere men, the one given in Acts chapter 20, I think, is the greatest sermon that was ever given. It is the heart of the Apostle Paul And by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 20, you're going to have an appreciation for Paul and for this sermon like maybe you've never had before. It is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. But before we get to the actual sermon that Paul preached, we have to get from Troas to Miletus. Do you remember where we left off last week? The city of Troas. Paul came to Troas and he sort of started teaching there. He spent seven days there with his traveling companions and They met on the Lord's Day for the breaking of bread and for fellowship, for prayer, for the teaching of the Word. And Paul began to teach. You remember the story went on and on and on and on until Eutychus fell asleep in the windowsill, fell three stories to his death, and then Paul raised him back to life. They went back inside the the house where they were meeting and back up to the third story there, and Paul kept teaching until daybreak. And then Luke says in Acts chapter 20, verse 12, They took away the boy alive and they were greatly comforted. And then Paul and his traveling companions leave. Look at verse 13. 
But we, and this is Luke speaking, and all of the men that he listed up in verse 4, Tychicus and Trophimus and Timothy and and Sopater and all of those men, we, verse 13, were going ahead to the ship. We set sail for a sauce, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. So they leave immediately the next morning. Paul takes a land route and everybody else goes by boat. Everybody else gets on board the ship in Troas. And if you follow it on a map, you can see that there's a, a little nose-shaped piece of land that sort of, sort of sticks out into the Aegean Sea. Troas is on the north of that. Asos is on the, second, uh, the south of that. And so everybody gets on board the ship except for Paul. Paul intended to go by land. He walked the 12 to 15 miles from Troas south to Asos, and there he was going to get on the ship. Now Luke doesn't tell us why Paul went by himself, does he? He just makes a historical note that Paul took the journey and he went by himself. Now why wouldn't Paul get on board the ship with everybody else and sail around there and take a little rest after teaching all night long? Maybe it is that Paul knew somebody in a sauce that he wanted to spend some time with before the ship showed up and he was hoping to beat them there. Maybe Paul wanted to stay in Troas for a little while longer with the saints there before leaving and catching up to the ship in a sauce. Maybe it is that Paul just wanted to be alone and pray with the Lord. That could be it. Busy night of teaching. Active night. He's leaving Troas and he knows he's never going to see him again. And if you ever got to a point in your life, maybe after active service or being heavily involved with something, where you just want to be alone and pray. You just you don't want any more activity. You've been with people, and, and the last thing you want is more people around you. You just want to be alone. Paul wants to be alone. And he leaves Troas, and he walks all by himself across the land, and everybody else picks him up in a sauce. Look at verse 15, uh, 14. He met us at a sauce, and we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following, he came to Miletus. See how fast Luke is going through cities here? We did this this day, and then this day, and the next day we were here. Bang, bang, bang. No details. No stops. Paul's just making a beeline to Jerusalem. He's on his way. What's he in such a hurry for? Look at verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul was in a hurry. And he, if you follow the, the, the course that he took on the map, you'll see that he sailed right past the seaport of Ephesus, didn't even stop in Ephesus. Why wouldn't he stop in Ephesus? He spent three years with those people. Does he not want to see them? Well, of course he wants to see them, and, and see, that's the problem. He knows that the minute he gets off, off the ship, he's going to want to stay there again, and they're going to want him to stay there. And he's going to want to get back involved in ministry, and he can't take the time to stop and see them He's got to be in Jerusalem by a certain date, and so he sends for the elders of Miletus. Maybe it is that Paul knew if he went back into Ephesus, there'd be another big outburst like with Demetrius in the theater and everybody shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Maybe Paul knew that he would get sort of sidetracked and kept in Ephesus, and that would keep him from meeting his goal. Paul originally wanted to be in Jerusalem for the day of, of Passover. Remember, he left Corinth, and he was going to sail directly from Corinth all the way across the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, to uh, Syria, to Jerusalem, but there was a plot on his life. Do you remember that? They wanted to kill him. So instead of getting on board that ship and risking his life, Paul took off and he went north and took the land route. Well, now he's had to adjust his plans. He, it says in verse 6 that he spent his time in Philippi, 
celebrating the days of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread. Now he's readjusted his schedule and he's hoping to make it to Jerusalem in time for the, for the Pentecost. And so he stops in Miletus. He doesn't want to go up to Ephesus because he knows that would keep him there. So he sends for the elders of the church in Ephesus. Chapter, verse, chapter 20, verse 17 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, have you noticed something? For those of you that have been with us since we started this third missionary journey, have you noticed something of all of the travels and everything since the end of chapter 18? There's one thing that stands out above everything else. I want you to turn back to chapter 18, and I want you to look at something. Chapter 18, verse 22 is the end of the second missionary journey. When we had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Verse 23 is the beginning of this third missionary journey. And having spent some time there, he left and he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, verse 24 through the end of chapter 18 is about Apollos and Priscilla and Quilla, and it's in Ephesus. Chapter 19, verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Now, you notice something there? How much time does Luke give to us? How much time does Luke dedicate to telling us about the journey from Jerusalem to Ephesus? One verse. Chapter 18, verse 23. Jerusalem went through. Galatia, Phrygia, strengthened all the disciples, came down to Ephesus. How much time does Luke spend on Ephesus? All of chapter 19. You can flip over to the end of chapter 19. You get to chapter 20, verse 1. He leaves Ephesus. Luke spends three verses telling us about how he got up over top of the Aegean Sea all the way down to Corinth. Spent three months there. Left Corinth, went all the way back up over the top of the Aegean Sea, stopped at Troas. Gives us a couple verses about that. Then he's back down in chapter 20, verse 17 in Miletus, and he's talking to the elders of what? The church in Ephesus. Do you get this? If you were watching a videotape, Fast forward from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And pause. And he goes into great detail about what happened in Ephesus. Then Paul leaves Ephesus. Fast forward all the way over to Corinth, back over to the top of the GNC, back to Ephesus. And we see about this address that he gives to the church in Ephesus. Two-thirds of the verses, I counted them up, two-thirds of the verses that Luke spends telling us about this third missionary journey, two-thirds of them are in Ephesus, concerning Ephesus. Of the other third, most of them are spent telling us how Paul got to Ephesus and what he did between the times that he was in Ephesus. Do you get the point? Ephesus is the key to the whole third missionary journey. If you remember nothing else about Demetrius and the guy running naked out of the house, the demon-possessed man whooped up on all seven of those guys, if you remember nothing else about the third missionary journey, remember this, Ephesus. It's all about Ephesus. Why? Because Ephesus was the city in which Paul spent the most amount of time. It is the city that presented for Paul the most spiritual fruit, the most blessing, the most converts, the most productivity. At no time before or after did the Apostle Paul produce spiritually like he did in Ephesus. That's the key city. It's in Ephesus. So Paul gets to Ephesus and now Luke is going to tell us all about how he gives this sermon to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, I don't want this sermon to ring hollow for you because you've you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably read through this sermon dozens of times. I've read it dozens of times. And I've taken note of some of the things that are mentioned there. there, And I've used them in preaching. I've used them in with some of the cults and things that I've talked with and people who've asked me questions about it. It's a, a very productive and a very useful text for all of those things. 
But if you just read through it, you're, you're kind of tempted to read through it and say, yeah, that's kind of neat, and just go on with chapter 21. I don't want the passage to sort of ring hollow for you, so I want to give you sort of an extended introduction to the sermon that's going to enable you to sort of really appreciate the uniqueness of this and anticipate what is coming ahead. This is a unique sermon, and, and I would suggest five things that make this sermon unique above all of the other sermons in the book of Acts. First is the very fact that it is included. It's important to Luke. How do I know that? Because he edited out a tremendous amount of stuff that he could have included about Galatia and Phrygia and all of the things that Paul did between Ephesus. All of the Corinthian stuff that was going on in that church. Luke could have included all of that. But it's with a good editor's pair of scissors, Luke cut out all that other material to make room for this sermon. It's important to him. There's a lot he could have told us about. But he reserved this space for this sermon. Second, and this is probably most significant, listen, this is the only sermon in all of the book of Acts that was preached to Christians. This is the only sermon recorded in the book of Acts that was preached to Christians. All of the other sermons in Acts were delivered to unbelievers. They are evangelistic in nature. They are an explanation of the Gospel. This is the only recorded sermon in this entire book that was delivered to believers. In the early church, Peter spoke to the crowd of, in which, out of which 3,000 people got saved. Do you remember Stephen's speech? His sermon was delivered to hostile Jews. Peter before Cornelius, it's evangelistic in nature. All of these sermons that are given by the apostles. Paul in Pisidian Antioch to unbelieving Jews in the synagogue. Paul in Athens on Mars Hill to unbelieving pagan philosophers. Paul before Festus and Agrippa and Felix and all of the rulers of the Roman Empire. All of those are delivered to unbelievers. This sermon and this sermon alone is delivered to Christians. Now maybe you've noticed this as we've gone through the book of Acts, but have you noticed on every missionary journey, Luke records for us a sermon. In Acts chapter 13, on the first missionary journey, it's Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue to unbelieving Jews. When Paul gives us, or when Luke gives us the second missionary journey, he picks a sermon that Paul delivered in Athens on, before the Areopagus on Athens Hill to unbelieving Gentiles. The third missionary journey is this sermon. So with every journey, Luke singles out a sermon and he gives to us the details of what Paul said. The first missionary journey to unbelieving Jews. The second, the speech to unbelieving Gentiles. The third, to Christians. And all three of these speeches are radically different. You know why? Because they are delivered to radically different audiences. You always customize what you're going to say without altering the message. You customize your delivery or your handling of the text depending on the audience that you're speaking to. I give you a different sermon than I would to the kids over in Awana on a Friday night. I don't, I don't speak to them on this level. I speak to them on a lower level. Why? Because my message is different? No, but because I adjust how I say what I say in order to communicate to a different audience. And this shows us something about Paul. Listen, friends, you've got to appreciate this. The man was versatile. It didn't matter whether it was Jews, Gentiles, or Christians. Paul could present a powerful and persuasive sermon to any audience. It didn't matter if you were monotheists or polytheists. Paul had you covered. It didn't matter if you were Jew, Gentile, or Christian. Paul had you covered. It didn't matter if you were an unbelieving Jew in the synagogue 
It didn't matter if you were in a court room. It didn't matter if you were on the Athens Hill before the Areopagus. Paul could preach to anybody, any place, any time, and do it with conviction, with persuasion, and with power. He was an incredibly versatile, versatile man. Some of us are one-shot ponies. Some of us can teach, but we've got that little niche, right? You teach two to four-year-olds. And I'm more comfortable in front of adults, in front of this group, than any other group. This is my little niche. I'm not real good in front of all unbelievers. That's not really where I'm gifted at. Other people are gifted in that capacity. I'm not. Paul could do it all. didn't matter, unbeliever or believer, Christian or unchristian, Jew, Gentile, in the courtroom, out on the hill, indoors, outdoors, up high, down low, didn't matter. Paul could do it. He was an incredibly versatile individual. So it's unique because Luke includes it. Second, it's unique because it's the only sermon given in Acts that was delivered to believers. And third, it is a unique sermon because of the sense of finality with which it is delivered. This is Paul's last will and testament, verbally spoken. This is, um, this is the heart of the Apostle Paul laid bare. These are his final thoughts to the Ephesian elders. There's no hint of humor, no hint of sarcasm. He doesn't begin with a joke to sort of break the ice. He doesn't use funny and humorous illustrations. As you read through this, you get this sense that what is going on is incredibly solemn. Paul is as serious as serious can be. He has brought to him the elders, the pastors of the church at Ephesus, and he is laying bare before them his heart. Look at chapter 20, verse 22. Look what Paul says. And now, behold, and and hear the weight of these words, I go bound in spirit on my way to Jerusalem. I do not know what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this. Every town I set foot in, the Spirit of God reminds me that when I get to Jerusalem, there's one thing that awaits me. Bonds and afflictions. Verse 24. I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. Paul, you're talking about death? I don't consider my life as dear to myself. I just want to finish my course. Oh, come on, Paul, you're only 50. you got years ahead of your ministry. Don't be talking about death now. Paul says, I just want to finish my race. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom of God will no longer see my face. This is it. It's the last time you're going to see me. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I, I don't know what's going to happen to me there except that it means chains and suffering. And I don't know how the Lord is going to work out all of that. It may mean death for me, but I'm fine with that because I don't consider my life as dear to myself. I just want to finish my course. I just want to end well. Ending for Paul could mean in Jerusalem. Because by this point in his life, he knows every step he takes brings him closer to death. And the hostility of Paul has grown to the point where no matter where he goes or what he does, people want his head. They want him dead. He is a hunted and wanted man. And you could fill a football stadium with people who would gladly kill him. And so he knows this this could be the end. 
if the Lord does not allow him to suffer death in Jerusalem, then he has his plans all mapped out. It's to Rome and then to Spain. Do you remember that? It doesn't include Ephesus. Paul says, this is the last time you're seeing me. You'll not see my face again. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 36. When they had said these things, this is the end of the chapter, when they had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. This is a serious occasion. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul writes to young Timothy who is in Ephesus, and Paul is days, maybe weeks at the most before his execution, and he if, if you want to look at the heart of the Apostle Paul, you, you pick up 2 Timothy and you read it, and you see the things on, in Paul's heart and in Paul's life that were of number one importance. These are the priorities. This is his last opportunity to communicate with Timothy those things that are essential. And so Paul in 2 Timothy pours out his heart. And apart from the book of 2 Timothy, this passage in Acts is the most intimate, the most emotional, the most personal glimpse of the Apostle Paul that you get anywhere in the New Testament. And if you want to get a handle on the heart of this great man of God, then absorb this passage. Know this passage forwards and backwards and upside down and right side up, and then you'll begin to understand his heart. Not only is it the only sermon recorded in the book of Acts to believers, but it's unique because of its sense of finality. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, and you had one thing to say to your wife and kids, what would you say? I give you five minutes to say it. And we were to record those five minutes. That, my friends, would reveal your heart, your priorities, and your life. That's when you get to the heart of the issue. I think it was Robert Murray McShane says, I preach as a dying man to dying men never to preach again. That's Paul. He is a man who has been condemned to die he knows his days are numbered, and he's giving his last sermon as a dying man to dying men, never to preach to them again. This is intimate, and this is personal. The fourth thing that is unique about the sermon is the emphasis that Paul gives. You see, to these elders, the very last thing that he gives them is not a formula for success or five steps for church growth or the most significant thing you can do to build the church in Ephesus big, healthy, and strong. What you get in Acts chapter 20 is attitudes, a mindset, a way of viewing life and service and ministry. It's not a set of you follow these five principles and your kids will turn out great, or you do these three things and you'll have a strong walk with the Lord, or you do these five things and Satan won't attack you. It's none of that stuff. All it is is the Apostle Paul talking about his life, his ministry, and he is handing over to these pastors the shepherding responsibilities of the church in Ephesus. And this is his last time to do it. And he doesn't give them steps, routines, formulas, programs. It's not a methodology. He just describes his own life and his own ministry. And he's basically telling them, you do the same thing that I have done. Here has been the model. You follow that model. You have the same attitude that I have. The fifth thing that sort of marks this sermon out is very unique is the specific audience that it's directed to. They say, you already mentioned that, it's believers. Well, it's more than just believers, it's what? Elders. He calls to him the elders, 
to Miletus. Miletus is about 30 miles away, so Paul was there for a couple days. would have taken somebody a couple days to go up and fetch the elders of the church in Ephesus. They would have taken a couple days to travel down to Miletus. It is the elders. It is the, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. Now you say, well, Jim, you just took this right out of my ballpark. I'm not an elder. What does this sermon have to do with me? The answer, everything. You know what an elder is? Boiled down to its essence, do you know what an elder is? A sinner who's been saved by grace and been given certain spiritual gifts whereby they serve the body of Christ. You know what you are? A sinner who's been saved by grace and given certain spiritual gifts whereby God expects you to serve the body of Christ. So if it applies to me, it applies to elders, it applies to you because every Christian is involved in ministry. Well, there are exceptions to that. The disobedient Christians are involved in ministry. But every obedient Christian is in some way serving other believers in the body of Christ with their spiritual gifts. So this applies to all of us. And you're going to see this text is rich. It is just loaded with gems and diamonds and spiritual truths that I think just revolutionize your way of looking at a whole lot of things. Paul gives his view of ministry and of the church and of church leadership and of serving the Lord and in some cases that of eternity. It's a rich text. Now there are some among us who are elders, some among us who have been elders, and maybe some here who in someday would like to be elders. Well then this passage is especially appropriate for you because it is delivered to elders. And so what is being said here is to elders, and what Paul does is he maps out for elders their priorities. He describes their office, their responsibilities, what should be the things that consume their attention and consume their time, what they are to be doing. And friends, I'll be honest with you, you might be shocked about shocked with what you learn about elders and eldership. Especially if you come from a church or have spent a lot of years in churches where the elders function as sort of the advisory board to the senior pastor, or as the groundskeeper, or as the janitor, or as the people who direct the corporation, or as the people who handle the money. Maybe you think elders are those who arrange potlucks and do weddings and make sure that the church is available for funerals, and they're kind of the guys who have been there the longest, or they give the most money, or they have everybody looks up to them because they're the patriarch of the church. If that is your view of eldership, if you subscribe to any or all of those ways of thinking, then this passage of Scripture will open your eyes like nothing else because nearly everything and anything that can be said about eldership and about leadership in the church is said in this passage. And you'll be most surprised to find out what the ministry of an elder is not. What it is not. Maybe you think eldership is, maybe you think elders are the elected representatives of the people who go to the elder meeting in order to vote the will of their constituency at the elder meeting. Somehow that's, in some places that's how it functions. Paul's going to give us a radically different view of elders and I, and I want you to look at a couple of observations from the passage just about the nature of elders. We'll get into the whole ministry of elders and what they do and, and how that applies to not only elders but how those principles apply to all of us. We'll get into that as we go through the passage, but I want you to notice a couple of observations that shed a tremendous amount of light on elders. One of them you read over and you didn't even think about it. You you read it, but it didn't even click with you that this is a tremendous insight. It's in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. 
Did you catch that? No, you didn't. You say, I just read it, and I read it twice while you asked me, did you catch that? And I didn't catch it. Notice two things. Elders is plural. Church is singular. Do you notice that? He called to him the elders, that's more than one, of the church, that's singular. In Ephesus, they had many men who served as elders. There were more than one of them. There was a plurality of them. You say, was that unique to Ephesus? Maybe they just were, maybe they just were unique. They had spent all that time with Paul, so they had a lot of gifted men. It wasn't just unique with Ephesus. Friends, that was the pattern throughout the New Testament. Everywhere that elders are described, however they are described, or whenever instruction is given to them, it is always plural. Acts chapter 30, verse, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 30. That's two chapters after the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 30 is. Acts chapter 11, verse 30 says that they sent an offering by the hands of Paul and Barnabas to the elders, plural, at Jerusalem. One church in Jerusalem, a plurality of men who served as elders. Acts chapter 14, Paul's first missionary journey, it says when they had appointed elders for them in every church. You notice that? Plural, elders, singular, church. Philippians chapter 1, to the church in Philippi, Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So does that mean that overseers and deacons weren't saints? No, he's putting them in there with saints. To the overseers, plural, and to the deacons. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those, plural, who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly because of their work. First Timothy chapter 5, the elders, plural, who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, singular. Elders, plural, in every city, singular. Hebrews chapter 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. James 5.14, If you're sick, call to you the what? Elders, plural. 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you. And I could go on. I could give you more and more and more examples. Over the church, singular, over any church, singular, God has ordained that that church should be led by men, plural who oversee the ministry of that church. So elders in the New Testament, or an eldership in the New Testament, is a group of men, a team of men, a group of people who jointly have responsibility and authority to shepherd and to oversee and to guide. The first thing that we notice about elders in chapter 20, verse 17, is that they're a plurality. And I could get into the benefits of a plurality of eldership, but just let me say this. When a church functions biblically with a group of men who serve together as a team, as equals, and they do so in a biblical manner, it is the greatest of blessings to a flock, and it is the greatest of blessings to the elders. The second insight that I want you to know, or to see in this text, is the different words that are used to describe elders. There are three different words in the New Testament that are used to describe the office or the function or the person of an elder. Now let me give those three to you just Real quickly. The first, first word is the word, the Greek word presbyteros. It is the word that is translated elder. 
That is the word that's translated elder in chapter 20, verse 17. He called to him, he called to him the presbyteroi, the presbyteros of the church of Ephesus. It's translated elder. It's the word from which we get our word Presbyterian. Has nothing to do with Presbyterianism, the denomination of Presbyterians as Christians. It's just the word that we would use to describe a church that is led by biblically qualified men who function as an elder. This church is, is led by elders. This church functions as a Presbyterian form of church government. That means that it's led by elders. It is also the word that is translated elder in Titus chapter 1 verse 5, appoint elders in every city just as I directed you. The second word that's used to describe the office is the word episkopos. It's a word that in the King James was translated bishop. In some of the modern translations, it is translated overseer. 1 Timothy 3. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. In Titus chapter 1, Titus or Paul uses elder and overseer together to speak of the same office. Appoint presbyteros in every city as I directed you. A overseer, an episcopos then, must be above reproach. When he's given the qualifications of it. An elder is an overseer. An overseer is an elder. They are the same office, the same function, and the same man. The third word that is used in the New Testament to describe the office is the word poimain. And it means to shepherd or to pastor. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Speaking of the gifts that God has given to the church, he gave some as evangelists, some as apostles, some as pastor-teacher, poimain. It's used of the function of feeding and nurturing and shepherding a flock. All three of these words are used together right here in Acts chapter 20, and I want you to see how Paul does it. Verse 17, he called to him the elders, the presbyteros, to Miletus. Look down at chapter 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. Episcopos. In order to do what? To poimain, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Paul says you are elders who have been given the ministry of oversight in order that you might shepherd or pastor the church of God. There is no place anywhere in all of the New Testament where there is ever a distinction made between pastors elders, or overseers. All three of those words are used of the same office, the same function, the same person, the same giftedness, the same calling. So that when you have a plurality of men in the church who lead the church, they are elders, overseers, they are shepherds. You have three elders in this church. I am, I have no more authority or responsibility than do Jess or Dave. I, I, I'm not their boss. They don't answer to me. I don't answer to them. We function as a team. We function together, all three of us, on the same page. There are difference, differences of giftedness even within the eldership, and so the function of the eldership is divided, and the ministry of the elders is divided according to giftedness and according to calling. But as far as authority and responsibility go, all the elders of any given church are together called to shepherd the church of God. Because an elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is an elder. You get that? First Peter chapter 5. Peter's not the only apostle that did that, used all three words to describe the same office. I exhort, Peter says, the elders among you to exercise 
oversight and to shepherd the church of God. All three words are used in 1 Peter chapter 5 to describe the same office, the same calling, and the same giftedness. So do we have pastors and then elders and then bishops over pastors to oversee the pastors in different... No. Scripture only gives one office for leadership within the church other than deacons. I mean spiritual leadership. And that is the office of an overseer, the office of a bishop, the office of an elder, the office of a shepherd, the office of a pastor. Call it what you want. It's all the same thing. Now I told you that the passage has to do with ministry, because it's not a description of methodology so much as it's a description of Paul's ministry. And I want you to notice sort of how this passage is divided up. Verse 18 through 21, Paul describes to them a persistent ministry. Now I want you to just read down through this if you, as you will, and look how Paul describes his ministry in five different ways. Verses 18 through 21, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you and anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a persistent ministry. Second, Paul describes a purposeful ministry. Verse 24, uh, 22 through 24 And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course. That's purpose. It's a purposeful ministry. Finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 25 through 27, Paul describes the preaching ministry. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Verse 28 through 32, the Apostle Paul describes a protective ministry. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then in verses 33 through 35, Paul describes a principled ministry. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must keep the, uh, help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A persistent ministry a purposeful ministry, a preaching ministry, a protective ministry, and a principled ministry. That's quite a ministry, isn't it? If we were going to take this whole sermon in one chunk, it would be five points. It's a five-point sermon. A persistent ministry, a purposeful ministry, a preaching ministry, a protective ministry, and then a principled ministry. That would be one long sermon. And we could go all night long toward daybreak. Some of you would fall asleep and fall out of your chair and die. And since I don't have the ability to raise anybody to spiritual life, and since tomorrow, or raise anybody back to life, and since tomorrow I'm not leaving on a ship bound for Jerusalem, 
And we'll save the first point for next week, and that is we will look at what it means to have a persistent ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture which shows us so much about your church and about your love for your church and what you have done for your church and how you work in your church. And we pray that in the weeks ahead, that as we look at this passage of Scripture, that our eyes and our hearts would be open to learn those things that you have in this passage that are going to influence how we serve others and what we do in your church. For we want to have a biblical view of church, a biblical view of the church leadership, and a biblical view of what it means to serve one another for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his name. We thank you for this morning in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.